Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, we have a special different sort of episode. Um, We're doing a four-part is it four parts? Is that right? Yeah, four. Or three. <laughs> four. <laughs> Maybe somewhat aspirationally. We're doing a four-part series on criminal justice and mass incarceration in collaboration with another podcast called Cited out of the University of British Columbia. Also, this series is made in partnership with the University of Washington Center for Human Rights and Harvard Law School's Fair Punishment Project. That means today I also have co-hosts. One of them is Sam Fenn, and the other is Catherine Beckett. Um, Sam, uh, you are the host of Cited. If you could just say a little bit about what that is. Yeah, so Cited is um, a nerdy podcast, basically, where we where we we kind of like each week try to get dig down deep into um, to one policy or like one piece of research that informs policy. So we've done these kind of radio documentaries in the past about most recently about a heroin clinic where where a very small group of people in Vancouver get uh, heroin that's prescribed by doctors and bought by the Canadian government. Um, We've done stuff with um, with Catherine Beckett, who's also uh, you're about to introduce um, about the, the myth of the super predator in America. Um, and we're, we're just kind of a storytelling show that looks at the world of research and academics. So kind of like the dig, uh, more storytelling and somewhat less brazenly socialistic. Um, sort of advertised less brazenly socialistic, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think the, the <laughs> listeners have figured out our proclivities at this point. <laughs> um, Catherine, you have a lot of experience as a scholar researching uh, this horror show of a situation we have in the United States with mass incarceration. Can you say a little about your work and who you are? Sure. So I teach at the University of Washington. I'm a sociologist by training, and I also teach in the Law Societies and Justice program here. Um, Yeah, and I've been um, studying mass incarceration in one way or another for a couple decades now. I'm not going to be precise. Uh, And uh, I agree. It's it's a deeply problematic phenomenon that raises a lot of really important issues. So so maybe the place to start, we're we're currently at this moment where there's – there are a lot of important things kind of fighting for our attention, immigration policy, health care, obviously. And I'm wondering, like, what's the pitch of why we should care about mass incarceration in this moment? Why, why do this series now? Um, yeah, so, yeah, I guess what I would say is, well, and those other issues you mentioned and so many more are also extremely important. But uh, I think what people sometimes don't appreciate about mass incarceration is just how many people are touched by it in one way or the other. Um, So for example, a colleague of mine recently did a study and found that one in two black women in the United States has a relative in prison. And she was able to show that having this relative in prison uh, or more than one um, has really important health effects for the women on the outside. And there's just a lot of research like that. So there are millions of people who are directly affected, but then there are many millions more who are indirectly affected by this really um, novel institutional development that no other country has ever done before. 
So I think for me, it's really the ways it's now implicated in the reproduction of inequality and poverty that is really kind of mind boggling. Yeah, I think that's really well put. Um, Not only is just the number of people who are incarcerated in this country staggering some estimated 2.2 million people behind bars in one way or another in this country, um, but also that it serves this really critical and nefarious function of of social control and discipline of of poor people and and poor people of color in particular in this country. So it's it's not just mass incarceration being a sort of prima facie massive human rights violation, but it's about this function it serves to keep a political economic system, a political economic order in place that has meant economic pain and precarity for for huge numbers of of Americans. And I think that's a good that's a good place to start going back in time. So I I want to start the story we're going to tell today back in 1971, the Nixon Nixon administration, they just release a uh, report and it's called Presidential Commission on Criminal Justice Standards and Goals. And at the time there's this young criminologist named Todd Clear um, who receives this report and is excited by uh, what it says. They argued that at the time had come to uh, move away from prisons as a way of, uh, of punishing people for felony crime and instead uh, ratchet up the, a whole array of community-based penalties with, a, uh, with a, uh, an emphasis on the idea of reintegration. So this is Todd Clear. He's a professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers, and he's the author of a book called The Punishment Imperative, The Rise and Failure of Mass Incarceration in America. So do you think if you were uh, an expert in the field, you know, at the end of the 1960s, you might have reasonably suspected that the U.S. was going to actually move in this direction? Not only might have, I did. (laughs) So we were convinced that states and local governments were going to have to figure out ways to deal with this large number of people convicted of felony crimes who were going to be maintained in the community. And so we uh, founded a group called the Center for the Abolition of Prisons, CAP, and um, we had letterhead and business cards, and we were going to make our our living consulting with state and local governments about how to uh, manage this large number of people who are going to be coming out of the court system who are going to be kept in the community instead of being sent to prison. So Todd is mostly keeping his eye on what the criminologists are up to. And if you just looked at that, you might think that the country is about to move away from using prisons and jails as the main tool for fighting crime. Uh, It was an exciting time, we thought, because we were on the forefront of a set of changes that were going to restructure the way way corrections uh, did its work. And we were right that that a restructuring of the way corrections was going to do its work was about to occur. It was the exact opposite of what we thought it was going to be. In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. At the current rate, the crimes of violence in America will double by 1972. So there was a conversation among criminologists and administrative appointees and so forth. And then there was the the political sort of conversation and what was going on in the in the elections, the the national elections in both 64 and 68, um, was that presidential nominees were really calling attention to the quote-unquote, you know, law and order crisis. And I think in pretty um, 
pretty clearly racialized ways, trying to kind of break apart white support for uh, the Democratic Party. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security. When did you realize that, that something else was going to happen? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, the, the irony is that it took a while to figure out that something had changed that was not going to change back quickly. Uh, and it wasn't really for many of us until the later, latter part of the 70s after parole started being eliminated, determinate sentencing statutes started being put in place. Most of the determinate sentencing statutes increased the length of stay for people. Many of them um, reduced eligibility for probation sentences for certain kinds of felons. And so it was in, uh, toward the latter half of the 70s that we, it started to dawn on, at least me, and I think also others, that something was going on at the state level uh, that was different from this conversation that had been taking place among correctional experts. Catherine, I'm wondering if we can underline a couple of the things he said there. So parole starts to be eliminated. Uh, and the other thing he said was determinate sentencing. What What is... Uh, Dr. Clear talking about? Yeah, so determinate sentencing statutes um, basically replaced the older system where judges had a tremendous amount of discretion in terms of imposing sentences, and they could impose sentences that had huge ranges. So, you know, they could impose a sentence of one to 25 years. And what happened, um, the trend that Todd's referring to there is a lot of states started worrying that that was creating a situation where outcomes could be random or arbitrary or racist. And they started moving toward these determinate sentencing um, frameworks that really limited uh, how the range of possible outcomes in terms of sentences. And when most states did that, they also got rid of parole release. Um, and so that that meant that there was no opportunity if someone did get a long sentence, there was no opportunity down the road for them to make the case that they were safe to be released. Catherine, is it fair to say that the rise of determinate sentencing is in some sense a case of liberal good intentions, not entirely so well thought out that are then hijacked by the politics of the time, which are conservative and oriented towards law and order? I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I kind of think both things are true in the sense that at the time people were so focused on restraining judicial discretion that they forgot that um, that it was going to move somewhere. It wasn't going to be gone. Discretion doesn't go away. It just kind of moves around. Someone coined the phrase the hydraulic law of displacement to talk about how discretion moves around. So it moved. It moved to legislatures and it moved to prosecutors. And I think there was a sort of almost, yeah, it was, I, I think that was predictable, and, and yet it wasn't predicted. You know, you, so you started this story with you as a, as a researcher at the end of the 1960s, part of a kind of a consensus. How, how does the research world change? What, what was the landscape like during this period? Well, so criminologists invented the, uh, Al Bloomstein, uh, the, uh, one of the leading criminologists really in my lifetime, uh, developed this idea of lambda. Lambda is an unknown. It's the number of crimes a person commits on the streets, an active criminal commits on the streets in a year. Uh, and, and it is literally based on this idea that there's this number, and if you put the person in prison, that number of crimes is, is prevented. And what, and, and a, 
a kind of a cottage industry developed trying to estimate Lambda. So, okay, this Lambda stuff is a little bit complicated, but basically what the criminologists are trying to measure is a thing that they call incapacitation. If you lock criminals up, you're going to prevent them from committing more crimes and save taxpayers money, or at least that's the theory. There was a, an economist in uh, the Justice Department named Ed Zedluski who uh, wrote a paper that estimating that every year of prison uh, prevents 700 and some crimes from being committed. And when you do the sort of math of the cost of crimes, it turns out prisons are cheaper. And I remember getting uh, five free copies of this paper in the mail. It had not been peer-reviewed. It was a publication of the U.S. government. It had some obvious problems. The most significant problem of which is if you take that number 752 and multiply it times the difference in the incarceration and the number of people locked up in 1970 versus 1985, you got a number that was bigger than all the crimes committed in the United States. <laughs> so it was kind of like this huge sort of mathematical flaw that didn't seem to matter. In spite of the bad math, Clear says that the country continues to embark on what he calls a grand social experiment. It's something on the level of the New Deal or the War on Poverty. In the 1970s, it was determinate sentencing and the end of parole in many states. In the 80s, there's the War on Drugs with Rockefeller drug laws and mandatory minimums. This sees huge numbers of people of color incarcerated. And then in the 1990s, the Clinton administration passes the crime bill, and that only makes things more punitive. I think what we did was to say um, some of the things that we believe are true about human change, some of the things we think are true about poverty uh, and uh, family dynamics and education. So we're going to set all those aside, and we're going to also take some values. We, we, you know, we believe in, human, in investing in human beings. We believe in children having opportunities and on and on. And we set those values aside. We're going to set all that stuff aside, and we're going to say... What if we just focused on incarceration as the main way that we, that we respond to crime conceptually? In the end, what did we learn? You know, we learned that the connection between the number of people in, uh, in, locked up on any given day and the amount of crime in the community on any given day is much, much smaller than we would have thought. It's not zero, but for a whole host of reasons that we now understand better, it's, it's nowhere near one for one. The second thing we learned is that there are collateral consequences to growing a prison system related to inequality, uh, racial injustice, um, diverted resources, uh, those kinds of things that, uh, that really are, are much more expensive both fiscally and uh, spiritually. I mean, uh, culturally spiritual. I mean, ethically. Uh, the, 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 those collateral consequences are much more expensive than we would have estimated. Something we haven't talked about much in this conversation so far um, is the actual crime rate. We've been mostly talking about incarceration rate. But simply put, like what as the rate of incarceration has increased, what has happened to the crime rate? Everything. It's gone up. It's been stable and it's gone down <laughs> in different time periods. The crime rate we had in the, in the early 70s is about is about the same as the crime rate we have now with uh, five times the rate of people in prison. So we've we've done this grand social experiment. Um, we've fundamentally changed the the kind of nature 
of democracy in America and life in, in a number of communities. We've built up this massive system, right? Um, and, and we're kind of where we started. And so I'm wondering, like, what that tells you. Well, for me, and I think for a lot of people increasingly, uh, it says to the extent we are concerned about public safety, the answers lie in places other than the prison. And that to the extent we are concerned about social justice, um, prison is an impediment. So, you know, in this um, series, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. We're going to talk about rehabilitation, social programs, those those kinds of things. Um, but I want to I want to really highlight what you call the two iron laws. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could lay out what you consider to be the most important things that regular Americans can push for um, to try to solve this problem. So the iron law of prison populations is very, very simple. Prison populations are produced by how many people go there and how long they stay. Nothing else matters. That says that if you want to reduce the number of people who go to prison, send fewer people there. How do you right? send fewer people to prison? You, you use probation more effectively. You use fines more effectively. You, you might say something like people convicted of drug possession may not go to prison. And then send people who go to prison there less for less period of time. This is particularly true for people who serve long sentences. So, for example, 10 people who are serving 20 years, if you cut them down to 10 years, that's, that's, uh, that's 100 years of prison time saved. To get that for a person where you go from two years down to one year, you have to have 100 people dealt with. You have to reduce 100 people by, by a year. So what you're talking about is a what until now has been considered basically a politically untouchable thing, which is to do sentencing reform for violent crime. That is 100% correct. And if you, uh, and there are lots of reasons why it makes a lot of sense to do that. Um, but if you, if you take the people convicted of violent crimes off the table, the chances of having significant reductions in the number of people incarcerated uh, are uh, dramatically reduced. And, and one of the things we know, these are the dirty little secrets of criminology, people convicted of violent crimes have the best success rates when released from prison of all the people, right? Drug crimes, the lowest success rates. We know that people who are convicted of violent crimes have relatively low rates compared to everybody else of reconviction for violent crimes. We also know that um, intervention programs for people convicted of violent crimes can work uh, very well. And we know that most people who are released for a violent crime are already in their late 30s or 40s, and their, and their uh, overall recidivism rates are quite low. So sentencing reform for violent crime. Yeah, I think he's right about that. Um, it's the piece of the thing that no one wants to talk about because it's uncomfortable and scary and awkward for people to have the conversation about punishing less someone who convicted uh, or committed a violent offense. But, you know, I think it's really helpful to think about it in comparative terms. I mean, no other country imposes life without the possibility of parole in the way that the United States does. And then even sentences like a 10-year sentence or a 15-year sentence are extremely rare in most countries of the world, but they're very common in the United States. So it's almost like 
there's been inflation. Like what we think is normal and right for a penalty for a robbery, say, has just um, grown and grown and grown. And, and people are afraid to be perceived as sort of weak or, or not taking violence seriously if you start questioning that. Yeah, and I, I think it's just a really incredible challenge that the movement to end mass incarceration faces. Um, there's been a lot of really productive shifting of the public sentiment away from punitiveness when it comes to things like drug possession and even nonviolent drug dealing um, offenses. And, and and that's great. But the way the conversations are, are, are framed, I'm worried, doesn't actually change the way that we think about the validity of, of extremely harsh punishments being imposed on, on the violent offenders. Um, we have to rethink how we deal with people who do bad things that we don't want people to do, like really bad things um, sometimes, um, if we're going to actually end mass incarceration in this country. I, I worry about what the political slogan will sound like, you know. Um, it's Medicare for all is catchy. Um, I get it. I understand what it means. Less time for rapists doesn't sound great. <laughs> it's a challenge, right? I don't know. What do you think about it, Catherine? Yeah, it's a definitely a, a political challenge. Yeah. I think the other thing that sometimes I see in the classroom that's effective is if is when you contextualize people's behavior. So we tend to, you know, everybody sort of invokes some image of some serial killer that they, some psychopathic serial killer. But when you really tell the stories of people who are serving long sentences, the actual stories, you know, it's it's much grayer. It's much more complicated. They, too, were often um, a victim of violence, abuse, poverty, racism, et cetera. And, um, and so sort of assigning responsibility and denying the possibility of change and maturation becomes much more difficult when people are humanized and their full story is told. And so that's actually a good place to transition to the next part of the show. Coming up, Dan talks with Larry Krasner, a progressive lawyer who has shaken up a DA's race in Philadelphia. But first, I talk to a man who did commit a violent crime, Reginald Dwayne Betts, poet, author, activist. You're listening to a special joint episode of Cited and the Dig. I'm Sam Fenn, back in one minute. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Cited and The Dig. I'm Sam Fenn. Dwayne Reginald Betts is an American poet and activist. He is currently getting his PhD in law at Yale University, and he's the author of three books, including a memoir called The Question of Freedom. Dwayne, thank you for being on Cited. It's my pleasure. So I want to start where your memoir starts. So that's 1996. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what your life looked like in 1996? Um, 1996, I was 16. I, you know, honestly, man, my life looked just like everybody else's life in 1996. It looked like, I think most teenagers, 
you know, I, I, one of the one of the challenges of um, <laughs> talking about yourself all the time and of being a public writer and having written a memoir, one of the challenges is to make sure that you don't get into the game in which you start to mythologize, you know, your own existence. Yeah. And so, the, you know, the, so the truth is really, man, at 16, I was like most 16 year olds. I smoked a lot of weed, decent in school, but didn't work that hard. And um, and I guess maybe the one crucial thing about my childhood that influenced some of the decisions I made around that time was that I lived in a community where the realm of possibility included crime and included violence. And, um, and I end up going that route. So so what is what is it that you actually did in 1996? I carjacked a man. Me and a friend of mine, we carjacked somebody. It was at a mall in Virginia and um, suburban Virginia. And we, we approached a man who was asleep in his car. And I had a gun and I tapped on the window and I woke him up. And he couldn't see the gun because my coat was too big. And so, and it was a small gun, probably a 380. I can't remember. I've only held a gun one time. And so, and I've never fired a gun. And that gun was on safety. And so I can't really remember what kind of gun it was because I'm just not a gun expert. But I'm pretty certain it was a 380. And it was small and it was black. And my coat, you know, this was the mid 90s, late 90s, when everything you wore was two or three sizes too big. And so my coat was way too big for me. And even stretching my arm out, you couldn't see the gun. And so I don't, I know he didn't see it because he wasn't alarmed initially. And then when he rolled down his window, that's when he saw it and um, told him to get out of the car. Uh, but yeah, he got out of the car, threw the gun in the car. We took his wallet and then we drove off. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could give us some of the like, the context and the background, like 1996. So we're in, we're in like the Clinton years, post crime bill, right? Super predators. Like, tell us a little bit about just like the, the moment in us history that, that you happen to find yourself in at that time. Yeah. I, I honestly, I think it's important to recognize that 1996 post crime bill, Bill Clinton, two things happened for me. I think, um, one, you get rid of parole and all of these. You encourage states to get rid of parole. But but also you had this whole super predator rhetoric. You have John DeLulio. And he wrote his piece in 1995, arguing that there would be this rash increase of young black men and young men of color who would be robbing and stealing and raping. And those things didn't turn out to be true. But I think it's just really important to think about the sort of rhetorical weight uh, the legislative decisions and also the rhetorical weight of the, of the language that was used, the descriptive language that was used that turned out to be inaccurate and, and how that that anchored and, and it still anchors the way we think about punishment into the abyss of life sentences and 30 and 40 and 50 year sentences. I want to jump ahead to something. There's a there's a really I mean, the book is remarkable and there's there's so many fascinating moments. But but at your sentencing trial. There's something that the judge, Bruce Bach, says to you, right? Um, he says, I don't have any illusion that the penitentiary is going to help you, but you can get something out of it if you want. Do you, I'm just wondering, like, looking back, like now as an expert, what, what, you, what you think of what he said? Um, I, I knew that from memory, actually. I never forgot that he said that. Yeah, I never forgot that he said that. And I think um, when I reflect on on that comment, I find myself weirdly appreciative because um, 
because that shit became what I hung my head on. What do you mean? It drove some of my anger. It, it drove some of my understanding of why the system was a problem. And it fueled my need to to prove to somebody, maybe to everybody, that I wouldn't be destroyed. You know, I just, so I held on to it. But I, I think it was honest, you know, and I think that it was, in, in my more thoughtful moments, I will concede that it was him attempting to say something meaningful in an hour of a long career that probably had far too many moments like that. How much time did he give you? And he gave me nine. He gave me nine. And the minimum sentence was 23, right? The maximum sentence was life plus, I guess, 23. And so he sentenced me to 23 years, and then he suspended time and ran time concurrent. And I ultimately ended up with a nine-year sentence. This is a tough question, but... How now, do you, looking back, do you determine whether or not that was just? Um, I think a just sentence would have been one that afforded me the opportunity to demonstrate that I was ready to be released to society. I think that we concede that, you know, punishment, that, that is more to this than just punishment. It's more to it than just retribution. And given that we can see that, I think that we should have a system that takes more seriously the idea of rehabilitation, but also the idea of the social cost of incarceration. At some point, you get uh, negative returns. And I'm sure that, man, I, I mean, I'm sure that it's a lot of people right now who we're just losing money on because they're locked up. And it's not just the stupid argument that people make about how much taxpayer dollars it costs to incarcerate somebody. Because, like, frankly, it's kind of like, who gives a fuck about that, right? It's like, yeah. I get it. It sounds good. And it's the kind of strategic argument that might get conservatives on board for prison reform. But w- what I care about is the is the social loss in terms of the, the sort of incalculable value that people bring to society if they are able to transition. And I think that that's what's missed. And so if I asked what would have been a just sentence for me, it would have been one that would have acknowledged that. A lot of this stuff that I've done over the past decade, you could have had five more years of that. And this is whether it was teaching poetry in the community or whether it was just getting my degree and paying taxes or whether it was being a mentor. Like you could have had five more years of that. And I think that that would have been exponentially more valuable than than me doing that extra five years in prison. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit like. Hey, do people curse on this? I'm sorry. Do people curse (laughs) on this podcast? Yeah, okay. fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> it's a podcast, okay. man. You can say whatever you want. Um, while you're serving time, you know, one of the things in this book I tried to do, every time you mentioned an author or a book that you read um, in jail or prison, I, I would underline it and write it down on a piece of paper. And that piece of paper, like, <laughs> stretched on for pages at some point. It, I mean, it's almost like you went to go do, like, a a, like critical theory PhD and not go to prison. Like some of these names, you read Charles Dickens, you read Fanon, you read James Baldwin, Malcolm X, Nathan McCall. Like, how did you know to read like this? Like, where, where did you get that? Um, man, I like that you said that. I think if I was a better writer, that would have been far more intentional. <laughs> and the funny thing too is, um, I, I once tried to do this in prison too. I tried to like write down every book that I was reading. Um, but I found that I just thought the, 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 the writing of the books tedious and I thought it was something that I was just doing to, to be able to brag about all these books later on. So I, I quickly abandoned it. 
So I actually read Albert Sample's book, Racehorse, the story of Albert Sample, who had been locked up. I read that before I went to prison. And then I read Nathan McCall before I went to prison, too. And I didn't read these like in preparation for prison. The Racehorse book, I just it was in my aunt's house and I picked it up off the shelf. I've always been that kind of person, just picking books off of the shelf and reading them because they look interesting. And then also when I was young, I had this thing where I couldn't stop reading a book if I started it because I thought that it made you somehow unworthy of I thought that it somehow made you unworthy of literature if you started a book and didn't finish it. Yeah. But um, but it was it was haphazard, though, man. I mean, I will read one book. It will lead to another book. So, you know, once I'm in prison, McCall, you have to read Manchild in the Promised Land. And then you find yourself. Uh, I don't know how I found John Edgar Wyman, but I started reading John Edgar Wyman and you read Wyman and you got to read Faulkner and you read Faulkner and it just expands, expands, expands. And so. I don't know. I wish I wish I could say that it was more intentional, but um, but it was only intentional as far as I went from one book to the next book to the next book. And I was kind of creating my own can canon. Yeah, I was going to say the, there's there's a way that just like the right books kind of just fall into your life. And then the most obvious example of that is Dudley Randall. And I was wondering if you would like share that story. So I was in solitary confinement and and in a whole the the cells were parallel from each other, so it was easy to slide things back and forth um from cell to cell, but there was no library, and so we basically had an informal library in which we just gave each other books. We would send books that we wanted to read, and you would just call out, say, I need a book. And people didn't ask you what you wanted to read. They just said, Okay, I'll send you a book. And so one day somebody sent me um, the Black Poets, and I don't know who sent it, but they just slid it under my door when I asked for a book. This is the one that really hit me. It was um, a poem called For Freckle Face Gerald, and it was about a 16-year-old kid that was in prison and how he had gotten raped in prison. And the thing was, I, I read this poem, and I got locked up when I was 16, and I realized that, that Etheridge Knight had gotten locked up in the 60s and the 70s, and... You know, at the time, I thought that me and my cohort, my friends, that we were the first group of young people to see prison in the way that we had seen prison. And realizing that it had been going on for some time just helped me to contextualize my experience. It helped me to, one, see the value of poetry as a vehicle of history. I should say that he just he gave me a model. Oh, OK. Well, uh, I, I want I want to hear more about that. So what what was it about, like, recognizing the continuity of this kind of technique of managing people, this kind of prison experience that, that you were living with, like realizing it was part of this, this longer story. Why was that important to you? Yeah. I mean, I might even describe it as a continuity of suffering, but one of the reasons why it was important is because it allowed me to begin to think more structurally about the issues. It allowed me to begin to ask question, questions that were more serious about what would be a different way to manage this issue? And I think, um, you know, and, and I think at first I might have been uh, inclined to just say, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. But when you recognize that Gerald was there and that a whole host of other people were there, then you realize that it has to be a bigger conversation or you're wasting your time. Hmm. So one of one of the themes in your book is redemption. And the way you write about it is is really complicated it's it's obviously something that you are thinking through, 
But at the same time, it, it just seems so obvious that you personally have been redeemed, whatever that means. And I want to get a sense of, of why you think it's turned out this way for you. Well, I mean, I, I guess, but I, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's important to ask redeemed from what, you know, I, I do wholeheartedly believe in, in change and believe in committing yourself to, you know, becoming somebody in the world. But the frightening thing about redemption stories is that, um, you know, they suggest that we would ever just simply one thing. And I, and I honestly don't think I was just one thing in, in 1996. So I don't know. I don't know if I changed my trajectory as much as the crown was aberration that led me down a long detour, but that ultimately, you know, took me back to where I always wanted and, ex- and expected to go. Mm. And that is, that has been good for me. Yeah. So we, we feature a lot of academics and activists on this show, but most, unlike you, haven't served time. And I'm wondering if there's any lessons that come out of that experience that inform the things you want to fight for now. So what are some of the specific policies that you're passionate about these days? Yeah. I, so, I mean, I, honestly, I, I mentioned parole earlier. You know, we have a whole um, dynamic that's rooted in like racist imagery that's rooted in racist policies that's rooted in racist structures. And I'm speaking specifically about the super predator narrative and I'm speaking, you know, specifically about um, Central Park five and how that led to the the invention of um, sort of draconian sentences, the reinvention of draconian sentences. And you could all go all the way back to the Rockefeller drug laws, but we, we don't have an antithesis to that. We don't have a story that has led to, the reemergence of parole as a, as a widely used mechanism. So we need that. But, but I, I mean, I, I believe in the possibility of parole and I believe that men and women in prison, um, I've talked to them and, and I've worked with some of them who do a lot to, to work, to demonstrate that they are, um, that they should be released from prison. And I think that parole is just the sort of quintessential way to address that, especially if you, if you start to, um, to like, pay close attention to these parole boards. And there's other things that you could do in the context of that. But I think that we just need to expand the use of parole and expand the availability of parole. And, and the same can be said for the pardon process as well. There's something I want to double back to in, in all of what you just said. And so you, you were talking about how the story of the Central Park Five was was a narrative that was kind of, I don't know what word you want to use, weaponized or marshaled to to create this suite of policies that led to mass incarceration and then we, then what you said was that we don't have a a counter narrative we don't have a different kind of story and i'm wondering like if you could talk more about that what sort of story do you think we need to hear now the problem is man look if you commit a crime you get to be representative of your and if you black if you black and you want to represent the race commit a crime right and you get to be representative of criminality and your narrative will get used and can get used by politicians all across the country to change policies. Right. But it is no way yeah. that my story will be used in the same way because people will always say Dwayne is exceptional. You know, the person that commits the crime is like it's funny. Right. Like in 1996, I could have been used in somebody's campaign to get elected. I, they said I terrorized the community and I changed how people went Christmas shopping forever. This is what they predicted, that my crime would forever change the way people went Christmas shopping. And I'm not trying to 
like belittle the impact of the crime I committed or anything like that. But I'm just saying nobody will say about my success. Dwayne's success will reinvigorate the way that black people, particularly young black males, think about reading in a way that society thinks about their potential and their possibility. Nobody would say that. I mean, people will laugh if somebody said that. At best, somebody will say that Dwayne's success demonstrates that he is exceptional. You are listening to Cited and The Dig. After the break, Dan Denver talks with Larry Krasner. I'm Sam Fenn. Back in one minute. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by the Fair Punishment Project. Too often in the U.S. justice system, the punishments imposed are grossly disproportionate to the crimes. They're imposed in a racially biased manner, or they fail to account for an individual's diminished culpability, often due to severe impairments. The result is our country's system of mass incarceration. The Fair Punishment Project is helping to create a fair and accountable justice system through legal action, public discourse, and educational initiatives, including a new blog series called Injustice Today, and a media partnership with Slate. The project is a joint initiative of Harvard Law School's Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice and its Criminal Justice Institute. You can follow FPP on Twitter, at Fair Punishment, to sign up for FPP's newsletter, check the show notes. We've included the link where you can sign up. Welcome back to Cited and the Dig. I'm Sam Fenn in the studio with Professor Catherine Beckett and Dan Denver. Hi. Hey. So one of the things that Todd Clear said to me at the end of the interview, which I thought was interesting, is that he has hope that that mass incarceration in the United States is going to be rolled back. And he listed a few reasons why. But one of them was the was a primary win by a guy named Larry Krasner in the city uh, that you're from, Dan. Um, and it's sort of it's kind of curious that so much the, the clear, you know, put so much stock in this one, this this one electoral win. But so I'm wondering if you can tell me who is Larry Krasner and, and what did you want to talk to him about? Well, um, soon after I moved to Philly in 2008, I started working as a reporter there for the Philadelphia city paper. And it was quite a few years back that I first met Larry when um, he was uh one of the city's most high-profile defense and civil rights attorneys. And I met him because I was writing a story um, for the city paper about a client of his who was being prosecuted for assaulting the cops even after a video had gone totally viral on YouTube of the cops beating the crap out of him. And it was this totally surreal situation that to me was a window into not only how police so frequently assault people um, with with impunity, even with the cameras rolling, even when there's viral video, but how prosecutors so often are, are shamelessly complicit in that. And um, I spoke to Larry a lot during that um, and watched him uh, cross-examine 
um, police officers who were obviously lying on the stand. And, you know, for years thereafter, he was one of my key sources for all of the abuses and dysfunctions in the Philadelphia criminal justice system. Um, And I should also mention that aside from having the conflict of interest of like Larry Krasner thinking that mass incarceration is horrible, he also is affiliated with Harvard Law's Fair Punishment Project, where I am a fellow. And so it's, it's, it's sort of surreal that he's likely to be the next uh, district attorney of Philadelphia. But when he first um, told me that he would be, be running, um, I think that I was actually more optimistic that he would win than, than he was because um, so much of the city has been so deeply harmed by, by abusive law and order policies over the past few decades. And, uh, and I do, th- I, I agree with, uh, w- with clear that, that a radical left-wing civil rights attorney can be, um, knock on wood, elected district attorney of Philadelphia, uh, a city that was once governed by former police commissioner, and turned mayor Frank Rizzo. Um, if it can happen in Philly, then I think really um, not to um, get too uh, optimistic here, but it could really maybe happen anywhere. Larry Krasner, welcome to The Dig. Well, thank you, Dan. It's always good to hear from you. So when we first met many years back, you were one of Philadelphia's most tenacious civil rights and defense lawyers, and I was a reporter at the now sadly defunct Philadelphia City Paper. It was 2013, if I remember correctly, and I was writing a story about a client of yours, Askia Sabor, who had the crap viciously beaten out of him uh, by police on a West Philadelphia sidewalk on video for no good reason, and was then charged with assaulting the cops who beat him up. And prosecutors were rolling with it, even though it was based on obvious police lies. Now, at this point in time in 2013, did you ever think that you might one day become district attorney in Philadelphia? Uh, no, <clears throat> it was not. It's not that I was disinterested. It was not a focus. It was not really a career goal at that time. It was uh, really not something I was thinking about. Um. I want to talk about how we got into the current mess that we're in today, both nationally and in Philly. What role, in your view, have prosecutors and the Philly DA's office in particular played in the rise of mass incarceration and, more broadly, in systemic criminal justice system abuse and wrongdoing? Well, I think that the <clears throat> the prosecutorial role has been crucial. You know, the reality is that at a certain point, it got to be an important stepping stone for a politico, for an aspiring politician. Of course, they were going to appeal to some of the, uh, how shall I put it, less enlightened voters by fear, uh, by Willie Horton tactics, by thumping their chest and talking tough and playing tough and fulfilling the role that yellow journalism has kind of laid out for them for you know over 100 years. Crime sells papers. And uh, to the extent that the newspaper or television news became a morality play about a good, tough, 
strong person, DA, fighting against a bad thing like crime, it was in their political interest to lock people up more and more and more. And yes, we had mandatory sentencing. Yes, we had the war on drugs. Yes, we had all these vehicles like the Rockefeller laws, three strikes, things of that sort that provided certain tools in the toolboxes of prosecutors. But to me, the most driving force has simply been the reality that it became a political springboard and the people who were attracted to that office were time and again willing to abuse it for their own personal advancement. And what were the concrete practices that prosecutors em, em, embraced um, that got us to where we are today? Um, as you mentioned, there were big changes in terms of sentencing established by elected officials via statute. What were the decisions, though, that, that prosecutors made? What role have did they play? Well, I mean, there is a, a sad tradition of um, concealing evidence, of not turning over exculpatory evidence. There is a sad tradition of coercing witnesses, including juvenile witnesses, to say whatever it was that the police or the prosecution felt uh, would get the result they wanted. And there is a very clear tradition of charging the highest possible charges, trying to achieve the highest possible convictions, and trying to get the longest sentences, regardless of what a more balanced view of the whole system might indicate. Um, and it's just, you know, it's almost been this blinded situation where as a defense lawyer, if you even tried to talk at sentencing about how much it was going to cost to take some mentally ill homeless person who was on his fifth retail theft and put him in jail for two to four years, if you even tried to talk about that, you would, you would either be laughed out of the room or told not to speak of it, or if you were fortunate, simply ignored. It has not even been acceptable to talk about the costs and the benefits in the sense of a, a more global view of justice uh, in the courtroom when we were dealing with sentencing or decisions about whether to pursue the felony or the misdemeanor and things of that sort. So you're the Democratic nominee, and not to jinx you, but all but certain to win the general election. If you do win, what do you think your office can do to right these decades of criminal justice system wrongs? Well, <clears throat> point one, my last political certainty was that Donald Trump could not be president. So I don't really consider anything in politics certain. And, and when you represent a bona fide challenge to the status quo at many levels, um, I'm taking nothing for granted and we're fighting as hard as we can for the general, which is on November the 7th. But if I am fortunate enough with my <clears throat> band of pirate activist organizers who seem to do politics better than politicians to be elected. Uh, there's a number of things we want to do. The first thing we want to do is stop seeking the death penalty, which has cost about a billion dollars since the 1970s, <clears throat> billion dollars that could have been in education. We've not actually executed anyone against his or her will since 1962, which is more than 50 years ago. Um, and we have released from death row six exonerees because they did not commit the crime for which they were going to be executed. So, you know, that's, that tells you something. It tells you about where your resources are going. So, um, you know, that will not, I will not be exercising my discretion to seek the death penalty in any case that I can foresee, that's for sure. So let's talk about some of the other reforms that are on your agenda if you are elected, um, starting maybe with cash bail. Okay. Well, I mean, what we know from the District of Columbia and to some extent Kentucky and New Jersey and from a wave sweeping across the country is that cash bail has contributed 
might lead to mass incarceration by making sure that poor people, uh, often on non-serious offenses, sat in jail. It's been a terrible deal for taxpayers because, for example, in Philly, it costs about 135 bucks a day to keep someone in jail, but that person may be sitting there not because the case is serious and not because of a record of failing to appear. That person may be sitting there for lack of $500, all right? That's a bad deal. That means taxpayers are paying a fortune simply because this person doesn't have money. And someone who has money but is charged with the exact same thing, with the same record, got out on day one. So if you do want to end cash bail in Philly, how do you go about that? Is it something that can be done overnight? It it cannot be done overnight. It is unlikely that a Republican-dominated legislature in Pennsylvania with heavy influence from bail bondsmen who make a bunch of money off of this and with a legislature that's in love with having people in jail for a whole lot of political and financial reasons, it's very unlikely they're going to pass a law that says no judge can ever make cash a part of bail. That does not, however, stop a progressive DA in Pittsburgh or Philly from going to court and on every single arraignment where bail is being set, urging the court either to give an astronomically high bail because the person really should be detained regardless of financial means or to give a bail that is rec- that is ROR. In other words, you're released on your own recognizance without any money, possibly with conditions, possibly without conditions. It would be ending it in practice, if not in, in the, by the letter of the law. Exactly. So I want to put on my pessimist hat for a minute. You have a really bold agenda in terms of cash bail and drug war prosecutions and wrongful convictions, but so much of mass incarceration in the United States and in Philadelphia exists not only because we punish people who who shouldn't be punished at all or excessively punish people for minor crimes, but that we've punished people increasingly harshly over the years, Um, people who do objectively bad things like violent crimes. And I think that violent Reducing sentences for violent offenders remains a third rail, even amongst um, mainstream criminal justice reformers. How are you going to think through dealing with, with, with prosecutions of people who, who do bad things in a way that doesn't continue to drive the levels of, of, of mass incarceration that we've had over the past decades? Well, you know, the I think the... Uh... The origin of this issue is the notion that someone who commits a violent crime is a fundamentally, irrevocably bad person. Some of them are. A lot of them are not. I mean, look, for example, at the fact that we have seen in California, which was truly draconian with its three-strike laws, we have seen that at a certain point, they realized that it was an unsustainable system, and so they took all these people who were doing life sentences because they'd committed third-strike offenses, and they did what they referred to as a realignment. A lot of those people got out, and lo and behold, these terrible, awful, horrifying people who'd done three crimes and needed to be locked up for the rest of their life were released. The level of recidivism was quite low at that point, and it was quite low for reasons that are frankly scientific. A lot of people age out of crime. A lot of people commit crime, even violent crime, in ways that are situational as opposed to fundamental to their nature. It has to do with their poverty. It has to do with their age. It has to do with poor decisions, getting involved in a gang that felt like a family. 
I'm not saying this to make any excuses for their conduct. That's not my point at all. But my point is, if you start with the notion that someone who does a violent thing is irredeemable, then, you, then you're wrong. You are scientifically wrong. So we have to be willing to look at that and be realistic, that the fact of the commission of a violent uh, crime at some point may or may not signify that you are flat out a bad seed who needs to be locked up forever. We're just going to have to look at that more carefully and be more surgical about how we approach that. What are the things that prosecutors and that you, if you're elected district attorney, can't do? Things that you'd like to see happen, but um, the legislature would have to take action? Oh, there are tons of things I'd love to see the legislature do, because I think for the most part, legislatures do dumb things when it comes to <laughs> criminal justice. They, you know, they, they come up with laws in response to, you know, events, newsworthy events. Oh, some city council person got stabbed, so now we're going to give some long sentence because he's our buddy and it's in the paper. You know, uh, a terrible crime happened involving a child. We will come up with a law with that child's name, and it will say that if you've done X, Y, and Z, then you are to serve your entire life in jail. We'll come up with this whole list of people who are reported, even if they're actually just being reported for getting drunk and urinating in public, you know, we'll call that a sex offense. So I think there's an awful lot of legislation that is brought about by ambitious people, many of them not attorneys, many of them have had nothing to do with the criminal justice system, all of whom read the paper and have big egos, um, and they just, they're just bad. I mean, they just come up with a lot of bad stuff. District attorney doesn't pass law. There's nothing I can do about that. District attorney doesn't make the decisions that the appellate courts make, which, which frankly are often political as well. Nothing I can do about that. But um, district attorneys do have quite a bit of discretion, and the appellate courts have made it clear that that's just something that you can't really regulate very well. You know, there has to be some play in the system to try to bring balance and fairness to decisions that are made. And as a consequence of this, district attorney, perhaps more than any other elected official, perhaps more, has the ability to do things based upon opinion and principle without having allies in the legislature or in the governor's office or whatever it may be. Finally, I'd like to talk about your campaign. You were seen as about as outsider a candidate as possible when you first announced but you won a really decisive victory in the Democratic primary. How did you win? What was the ground game like, um, including groups like Reclaim Philadelphia that knocked on so many doors? And do you think this is something that others can replicate around the country in their own cities? Well, let me answer the last part first. I absolutely think that this is something that can be replicated around the country uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we know that it's worked elsewhere. Uh, there have been approximately 15 races in which there was a sort of grassroots support uh, and also some national support for truly progressive candidates trying to be district attorneys or sheriffs or take important law enforcement positions, including, for example, Sheriff Arpaio's uh, spot in Arizona. And of those, I believe about 15 there have been 12 wins. So it works. And I think it works because politicians are not very good at what they do. You know, fundamentally, my career 
when it wasn't doing the things I've already described, was characterized by the pro bono defense of free speech. And that meant the defense of activists. It was defense of ACT UP. It was defense of Occupy. It was defense of other organizations and individuals who were progressive, whose messages, you know, often were consistent with my beliefs, but not always, you know. And what that meant in my case was that even though you could say I was a complete outsider, I was also inadvertently, unknowingly building an army of leaders because that's who activists and organizers are. And that means that those of us who have been down with their causes and supported them for a long time have credibility. You know, if you have a message that is real and then you have a messenger who is credible, that messenger is probably not coming out of government. People don't want politicians. And, and I fundamentally believe that people of goodwill who are close to activists and organizers because of the work they've actually done uh, and therefore have a credible record can come with fundamentally progressive ideas and with a base of support that does politics better than politicians and they can win in many, many, many jurisdictions. And I think they can win and you can win now in a way that wouldn't have been possible even a few years ago because attitudes, especially in cities around criminal justice, I think have decisively changed. They have changed. This this is the consequence that conservatives have earned. We are at a point where we know that one out of three black men will experience jail in their lifetime. The number for uh, for white men is one out of 17. The one out of black men for black um, women is one out of 18. And the number for white women is, you know, it's much less frequent than that. So the point that I'm getting at is when the conservatives got their way for decades and they just kept breaking individuals and breaking neighborhoods that didn't need to be broken by giving young black men convictions for relatively minor offenses that debilitated them from the workforce and that created a cycle of poverty. What you have is an awful lot of black women who are very aware of this, and they are some of our most potent voters out there. You have black men who are aware of it, and you increasingly have millennials holding hands with voters of color around these issues because those millennials, who, by the way, in almost every single state, the young vote was with Bernie, those millennials believe things that are very different than their grandparents and and much of their parents. They would like their gay marriage, thank you. They would like their recreational marijuana, thank you. They are not fans of racism and division. And they are also not fans of seeing astronomical educational bills and a crap public school system with all the money going into jails. You know, that's just reality. So we, we do have a coalition of voters of color and of millennials that will be extremely powerful and I think will be very effective in getting progressive leaders into positions of power. Larry Krasner, thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. Always good to talk. Thank you for listening to The Dick, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. This has been the first of a four-part series that we're doing with the University of British Columbia podcast, Cited. This series is also made in partnership with the University of Washington Center for Human Rights and Harvard Law School's Fair Punishment Project. As an eavesdropper once overheard Marx remarking, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. At this point, thanks to your generous support, twice a week. 
The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, leave us a review. They do help. So does spreading the word to your friends, family, and whoever else. Please make propaganda for us. And also, find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution. We appreciate it and we need it to keep this thing going.